Hey everybody, it's Rachel, Program Director at Strong Towns, and I'm coming here with a special announcement for you all. We are about to kick off our 2023 Locomotive Tour. This is the third time we're doing this. It is a really engaging, in-depth workshop series. Comes live to you every Thursday starting September 14th. We hold these during the lunch hour, 12 p.m. Central. Our hope is that people can tune into one, tune into all of them. We've got eight sessions. They're going to run all the way through November 2nd. So this could be a really cool way for you to learn about a whole bunch of Strong Towns topics, everything from how to turn that strode into a street or road to how to host a neighborhood walk to four tactics for fighting freeways and a whole bunch of other things. We have eight amazing guest speakers who are going to be part of each of those conversations, as well as a Strong Town staff member who's going to bring some Strong Towns expertise. And of course, time for Q&A at the end. Attendees to these don't just get to watch the live event every Thursday, but you also get unlimited access to the recording of it afterwards. And we'll post a bunch of resources. We always do a handy printable guide that kind of walks through the overview of the session. So it's really chock full of resources that you can take into your work to build strong towns in your community. We'd love to see a ton of people attend these. And something new that we're offering this year is a, we're calling it an after party on Fridays after each session. Uh, my colleague Norm is going to be hosting those and it's just a space to have further discussion about the content that was covered in that session that week. So that's open to anyone who attends and really would encourage you to check that out too. Finally, if you buy our, we call it our round trip ticket, if you grab that, you will also get access to two special pre-recorded episodes, and those are coming to you directly from our national gathering. So whether you attended the gathering and you didn't get to go to these sessions, or you did and you want to see them again, or what I know is the case for a lot of people, you didn't get to go to the gathering and you're a little bit bummed out about that, well, you can watch a recording from two of our most popular sessions at that event, and those include how to use social media to build a movement and create change and uncovering what's wrong with the property tax assessment system and holding local governments accountable. Those are both a bit of a mouthful, but that first one features a bunch of uh, really well-known YouTubers and our own Mike Pasternak, who's our video creator, our well-known YouTuber. And then the second session is two great speakers from Urban 3, Joe Minicozzi and Lanier Haggerty, talking about our ongoing Just Accounting project. Those two sessions are accessible to you only if you buy the round trip ticket, but all of the eight other sessions, you can just grab one for whatever Thursday you're available or grab the round trip if you want to tune into everything. So the round trip ticket is $125 and for Strong Towns members, it's only $100. The individual stop tickets are $25 each and you can find out all this info and grab your tickets at strongtowns.org slash local motive. That's L-O-C-A-L-M-O-T-I-V-E. Of course, we'll have a link in the show notes. Oh, and you also get AICP credits for these if that matters to you. So lots to offer. Really would welcome you all to join us for these sessions. Strongtowns.org slash local motive. All right, now let's get to your show. Mm-hmm. 
I'm Abby Newsham, and you are listening to Upzone. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to another episode of Upzone, a show where we take a big story that touches the Strong Towns conversation each week and we upzone it, we talk about it in depth. Today, I am going to be introducing two guests that I'm very excited to have. We have Daniel Harrigus, who is a repeat offender on this show. He's the uh, senior editor for Strong Towns. And I'm also welcoming Michael, Dr. Michael Michael Ralph, who is the director of research at Multi-Studio within the education practice. So welcome to you both. Michael, before we get into the article, would you be able to give us kind of an introduction to who you are since you are new to this show? Sure. Happy to introduce myself. Thank you for the invitation. I know that uh, my wife is a big fan of the show, so she's very jealous that I'm here right now. (laughs) Shout out to your wife. Yes, I will. Meg Roth is awesome. Uh, So my background is in education. I taught high school biology courses for a long time, but eventually moved into STEM teacher prep. And so I've been thinking a lot about how to work with teachers and support teachers as they develop their practice. And so in the context of our education work, uh, thinking about the role of environment and policy and how all those things interplay with everything else that happens in schools. So uh, my PhD is in educational psychology. I think a lot about measurement. And so as we think about the impact of the stories we're going to discuss thinking about how those manifest in data, what data can tell us, what data cannot tell us is something that I spend a lot of my time doing. Thanks, Michael. And I was excited that you were able to come on to this show last minute because I think the story that Daniel and I were discussing behind the scenes has a lot of overlap with some of the things that you all think about. So the the story that we are covering today was published in the Associated Press, and it was actually recommended by a Strong Towns member on our Slack channel named Nick. So shout out to Nick. Uh, this is entitled New School Bus Routes, A Disaster, Kentucky Superintendent Admits. So the school year has officially started for families with children. And unfortunately, in Kentucky, their largest school system had to cancel the second and third day of classes due to what they're calling a disastrous overhaul of their bus system. On day one, some children were still on their bus at 10 p.m. So parents were obviously not happy with the overhaul of the current system. And most of it was sounds like really driven by bus driver shortages. The school district over the summer spent nearly $200,000 to hire an engineering firm to preemptively coordinate new routes to reduce the number of drivers that are needed to actually get kids to school and the number of stops as well. And even prior to the school year starting, parents were not happy with the new routes because Children had to walk long distances to get to bus stops, and people were concerned that bus stops were located at um, unsafe intersections, and and now people are not getting to school or getting home on time. So it's a huge problem, and the school district is kind of, uh, you know, quickly trying to improve these routes so they can get on with their school semester as normal. Daniel, I kind of want to put you on the spot because you've written quite a bit about this uh, busing situation, and it sounds like it's something that is not necessarily a new problem. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I I wrote that it was um, deja vu in the Strong Towns Writers Room. About this time of year, every year, we get flooded with these stories about school transportation meltdowns. Um, 
And, you know, Michael, I'm so glad we have you here with a background in, in education. My background is not in education. Mine is in urban planning. So I, I react to this first and foremost as a planning problem. You know, to take kind of a high level view, you know, I think a lot of the reporting when these stories come out, you know, it's about, this is about school district budgets. It's about the functioning of that bureaucracy internally, or it's about a driver shortage because there are all sorts of labor shortages right now in an economy with sort of historically low unemployment. Um, and, you know, the, the stories that have made the national rounds the last few years have all been school bus driver shortage. And, I, and that's true, certainly. But I think if you step out from a planning perspective, the thing that grabbed me is we've created this problem for ourselves by arranging our school systems in such a way that it becomes really way more onerous and complex and expensive to do the logistical things like get kids to school every day and get them home every day than it needs to be. Um, and sort of the big picture context is about you know 50 years ago, um, the Safe Routes to School Partnership, which is a national coalition, they have really good statistics on this. In 1969, about half of all American students in K through 12 walked or rode a bicycle to school. And now it's like 10%. And the share of students riding the school bus has stayed roughly constant during that time at 30 some percent. Um, so the, the shift has been almost entirely from kids walking to school to being driven there by their parent or guardian. But it's because we have systematically, you know, across the continent, we've closed neighborhood schools, we've consolidated schools. When we build new schools, they tend to be on cheap land at the margins of the community. In a lot of cases, local or state governments impose school siting guidelines that actually require that you have a really enormous tract of land. You got to have your parking lot. You got to have the stormwater retention for your parking lot. You got to have every athletic field you can imagine. And the result is that we've systematically um, been placing schools for decades now for a wide variety of reasons in locations that are really spread out, that are really far from where students actually live, that require these really onerous commutes. And so I think the cost and complexity of just solving that logistical transportation challenge has gone up and up and up. The thing that really wasn't a focal point to the articles about Louisville, but that struck me, was that even when the bus does show up on time. The, the impetus for redesigning their bus network was they had persistent complaints from parents about it's, my kids have to catch the bus too early, they have to walk too far. In a lot of cases, it was they have to walk more than half a mile along the shoulder of essentially a highway, like a six lane strode, no sidewalks. Um, this is what we're asking children to do in order to get to school. Fundamentally, there's a broader urban planning problem where if you have environments where transportation is difficult and costly altogether, it's also going to be difficult and costly to run a school bus program. It just sort of brings those issues into focus because it's a case where one government entity is actually shouldering the costs and it's a single budget and you can kind of, as opposed to it being an issue that is spread out across, you know, hundreds of thousands of people's individual lives and pocketbooks. Yeah, Michael, I'm curious if you have thoughts about that, because this seems like it is, it's a cumulative layering of, you know, spatial urban planning problems that are related to schools, but also just related to the suburban development pattern and how we build cities generally, alongside, you know, the, the school districts needing to 
think about budgeting, efficiency, uh, student outcomes, and all of these different things that are resulting in where we place schools, which ultimately makes us incredibly reliant on very complex busing systems and transportation systems. It's very different than the kind of traditional neighborhood school that's like nestled in a neighborhood and people, you know, within a maybe a mile all go to that school. It's it's different now. Um, so I'm curious if you have thoughts about that. This particular issue in education is a little bit unusual in that it's got really direct policy consequences, which is uh, education so much is complicated, but this one is incredibly straightforward. If you think about what is the purpose of school and we want students to learn, we want students to develop, we want students to grow. And in all of those cases, being able to effectively and in a timely fashion, get kiddos into school and then get them home again at the right times and in an efficient way directly impacts pretty much everything that we care about as far as outcomes for schools. There's some really current research um, and a, a wide variety of studies that are showing that having start times that are not too early or not too late, getting students home in a timely fashion is directly connected to um, higher attendance rates, higher graduation rates, and especially being in school is then directly connected to Again, about everything. They learn better. They feel more connected. They feel a greater sense of belonging. You've got that efficiency directly translating to better outcomes from all of the school operations that you're trying to do. And so anything that we can do to directly impact more effective transportation so that we have a wider variety of start options that can then be adjusted to fit the developmental needs of students at these different age levels is going to have really clear consequences, which I think is particularly important right now with so many people who want to talk about things that they're calling learning loss. And this is a really straight line. Get them to school at the right time and get them home when they're done is going to lead to the greater impacts and reduce those gaps in the achievement that so many people are spending time talking about in all of these kinds of news articles. There was one particular piece of research that came out recently that I thought was particularly striking. It was a large scale study where they did something unusual. They just asked students how they feel. There are so many studies that say, do you feel this way? Do you feel that way? But this was a study where they just said, how do you feel? And across thousands and thousands of students, what I was a little bit shocked to hear, one of their top responses was, I feel tired. And tired isn't something that researchers even think about as being an emotion, but it was one of the top responses across thousands of students. And that is directly related. If we're putting them on a bus at 6.30 in the morning, if they have to walk to, to a bus stop for 30 minutes in the cold, which is what it is at 6.30 in the morning, we're directly contributing to less readiness to learn. They're feeling tired. They're feeling groggy. They're getting less out of their time in schools. And that's something that we can fix by just doing a better job of planning how we're going to do transportation. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, when you were mentioning start times, I was thinking, well, how do we even define a start time if you are at a bus stop at six o'clock in the morning in order to catch your bus? Is that your really your start time compared to other students who maybe are being driven to school or are located uh, in closer proximity and maybe catch the bus, you know, 30 minutes before school starts? That's definitely going to have impact on people. Um, and, and thinking just about like school districts generally, I mean, they're, they're an entity that I think much like municipal governments have to deal with 
budgets. They have to deal with deferred maintenance issues of buildings. There's, I mean, I think, I think we can all see that over time there's been consolidation of, of schools. And I think a part of that is defer, deferred maintenance, but I'm sure there's also lots of different kind of programmatic benefits. I was doing a little, little bit of research on kind of the pros and cons of that, but it certainly impacts the overall development pattern when essentially all schools and, uh, you know, I would say school campuses become large swaths of land that are not not really physically directed to community in general, but it seems to come out of this need for efficiency to have maybe less staff, less teachers, focused resources in one place, focused programs in a way that maybe is more consistent rather than having lots of different schools. So, it seems like there's this is the outcome of just many, many different uh, decisions that are really focused on efficiency. Daniel, do you see this as having kind of a, an alignment with how municipal governments operate and deal with resources? Yeah, I think that there's a there's a forest for the trees problem here where um, the big picture decisions that we've made about development pattern, which at this point, those decisions are mostly on autopilot and they create just tremendous inefficiencies, you know, they create these sort of systemic breakdowns that we're now seeing where um, there's a whole host of cascading consequences for basic well-being or for, you know, as Michael put it so well, for educational outcomes that stem from this broader pattern of how do we organize our communities. And that's a really, really complex ship to turn around. Um, but it's something that we need to understand in an interdisciplinary way throughout municipal government that this affects everything that it affects. Um, when you create communities that aren't cohesive and where people can't get around easily, or at least people who can't afford the ante of having a car on demand for every need, have a disproportionate difficulty getting around. Um, it affects educational outcomes. It affects public health. It affects all these things. Um, and then when we're dealing with them in silos, we're not recognizing that, um, you know, it's just um, this is the community we have. These are the subdivisions and these are how the roads are laid out. And this is where we put the school uh, because we viewed it as a cost saving measure to put the school where we put the school out on the highway at the edge of town. And now the school district as an entity is tasked with, we'll get all these kids to school, come up with a bus system that'll do that. And like the actual context in which they're trying to solve that problem is something that is beyond the school district's purview. Because these are really, really big holistic problems. Um, and that's the thing that we at Strong Towns are all about highlighting is like this, there are all of these cascading consequences from the basic question of how do you design a community? When you talk about efficiency, there is a lot of kind of penny wise pound foolish here that decisions that in, in a silo look efficient or look cost cutting or fiscally prudent, you zoom out to view the big picture and they are the result of tremendous inefficiencies that are just kind of baked in. Um, and that are going to be difficult to unwind, but it's got to be an all hands on deck. It's got to be something that's understood across the scope of local government and not dealt with within these silos of, okay, you're the school superintendent. Your job is to, to figure this out. There's something that's resonating with me in what you're talking about with this idea of focusing only on one side of the outcomes. There's a prominent education scholar, Yang Zhao, who talks a lot in his work about considering educational trade-offs. And I know, especially even in our education group, talking about how we can have community-connected schools while also recognizing that we need to be efficient in the way that we're planning and the way that we're creating those environments. And so recognizing when there are trade-offs about where can we have 
facilities that are providing all of the services that we need to have at a critical mass to do it efficiently. But then also some of these benefits, and especially the follow-on benefits, when you're looking at the cost of rising mental health needs for, for young people and even for adults, for those teachers who work in those schools, reducing commutes, re- reducing travel, reducing absenteeism is directly related to improving physical health, reducing sickness and increasing wellness among students. And the cascading consequences of those reduced um, beginnings of problems, saving the costs of those problems continuing to get worse over time is something that from, as a community level, we really need to be thinking about. And I'm not sitting here telling you that there's always going to be one single answer, but I think some of what you're suggesting is being able to recognize costs and benefits for some of these planning decisions so that you can make the right choices that are finding a balance for each community. It's such an important part of the conversation and a conversation that we need to be having a lot more often. That's exactly right. And the costs and benefits that aren't obvious when you consider a really narrow question, like where are we going to buy the land and build the school in isolation? Because um, they're cascading and they, they're they external to the, the agency, the bureaucracy, the silo in which we're operating. But yeah, thing. it makes me maybe not, not as helpful in like nitty gritty policy discussions about how do you fix this stuff? Because my mind goes straight to the holistic and to the like, are we are we building the kind of cohesive communities that that have strong ties of support and and means of support for their members internal to them and are we are we then manifesting that on the landscape um if i if i could digress a little i did um i wrote about my favorite um just just as a city planner my favorite elementary school in the city i live in i had the chance to write about sort of offhand in another piece a month ago there's an elementary in the next neighborhood over from me in st paul and it's a neighborhood that was built in the, it was laid out in the 1890s as kind of an early streetcar suburb. So it was all of the, the planning principles of that day. They were very concerned with where are the key civic structures in the neighborhood and how is everything integrated with the residences and how do we build a complete community? And what they did was they put the elementary school in the neighborhood park. Uh, and I absolutely love it. Every time I'm over there, I'm just like, this is, this is genius. Why doesn't everyone do this? Like, it's a very walkable, compact neighborhood, but the the community elementary school is just in the park. You walk out of school at the end of the day and you go down the steps and you're in the park and there's a playground and there's sports facilities and there's a rec center. And the result is like, I mean, it's good. It's good in some obvious ways. You're not dumping kids right onto a, a really hostile road. You're encouraging walk to school, walk home from school. You're encouraging like, I mean, school events kind of seamlessly spill out into this public space. So School events are inherently community events and vice versa. Um, And there's a lot of community pride in the elementary school. Um, You know, I went to the neighborhood 4th of July parade, which is the occasion I had to write about this place. And um, the whole neighborhood goes and watches this parade down their little commercial main street. And then all the neighborhood kids get on their bikes at the end of it and ride down the hill with streamers decked out on their bikes and everything and end up in this park. And they have a big cookout in the park for the rest of the day. And it's right in front of the elementary school. And it's kind of like, what a way of communicating through design. We are a community and we're all in it together in this place where we live versus busing kids to a site that's like really, really removed from where people live and where they play and where the rest of their lives take place. Yeah, I think that, I mean, that very much reminds me of the elementary school that I went to. And I grew up in a suburban area with cul-de-sacs, but the the elementary school was located directly in the middle of the neighborhood and had nature trails and people 
really use the facilities as a community park after hours. So there are a lot of benefits, I think, to having it located directly within the neighborhood. And people, there's a sense of attachment that people have to this destination. It kind of reminds you of like when people would locate church or civic build, other civic buildings, you know, directly in neighborhoods. And they're kind of a landmark. And there's something that you can centralize community events around and become really important in that way. And that's really not something that seems to be a huge consideration within, I mean, it probably isn't in some school districts, but there's so many other considerations that are on the table and the decision making for kind of this big picture question of what kind of communities are we building? The decision making is very siloed. There's planning departments at the municipal level, public works are often uh, who design streets are often separated, parks are separated, and that's all within kind of a city. And it's not always totally integrated. And a school system is a different entity than a municipality. And the level of coordination probably varies quite a bit from place to place that you go to. So there really isn't always this, like, I guess, combining of multidisciplinary insights to drive outcomes not that that was happening before, but we've kind of shifted in this other direction where maybe we've, um, we're not calculating the benefits that are associated with having schools that are more integrated in, in the community. Not that busing wouldn't be uh, needed still, but it, it would offer certainly quite a few other options, as Daniel mentioned, walking, biking to school. I'm, I'm interested in the question and I don't have great answers to the question of like, what do you do? How do we start to rejigger these systems so that we do have the interdisciplinary communication and coordination and we do look at these big picture questions? Because um, I agree with you. I don't think it was, it wasn't that we had bureaucratic mechanisms, you know, a century ago that were set up to get all the stakeholders in the room and hash this stuff out. It happened more by default because we had inherited a set of city planning traditions that just did this by default. And a lot of why it happened was communities were built around people who walked and things were in walking distance by nature. So like now, now we're in a situation where, you know, Pandora's box has been open for, for a century and everybody does have a car and everybody does drive. And um, yeah, I mean, it, it feels almost smug, you know, especially for me as someone who doesn't do education policy, no, just build neighborhood schools. And of course, there's a really long history to why we don't do that, including some really valid educational reasons um, to do with desegregation and, you know, the whole history of busing there. So I'm not trying to make light of any of that. Um, but I'm curious, like, I do agree that the, the problem of silos is key here, that there are cost and benefit questions that are just going un unconsidered because the people who would be needed to consider them aren't in a room together. That makes me think of one of the one of the things that I do is I serve on a, a mobility committee for for the city where I live. And one of the things that we've been talking a lot about is the way that we can be strategic in in growing a multimodal transportation system. And I think thinking more about follow on effects, one of the things that can be compelling is you pointed out the statistic early of how many how many families are relying on motor vehicles to get their students 
get their children to school. And I think that we don't have to concede that that has to be a default. We could be different if we chose to be. And some of the follow on effects of making more multimodal transportation systems is making it safer and more comfortable for people to walk or to ride a bike or to ride a scooter or whatever, whatever other means of conveyance they may choose. And if I'm in a city that is like my children are going to school, their first day was yesterday. And there's a long, long line of cars going into the school. And so like, we have to decide how they're going to navigate riding a bike through a bunch of cars. If there were fewer cars, we would be more comfortable with them being on a bike. And so I think you see this positive feedback loop of as we move towards more multimodal transportation, you also give people permission and comfort to be able to commit to more multimodal transportation, which reduces the burden on busing systems and reduces the burden on on motor vehicle traffic, which I think is going to have the follow-on consequence of making it easier to be more creative about how we get students to school. But making those first early steps is going to require require a vision and probably an investment to be able to to get past this place where we have so many students who are relying on an engine and four wheels to get to to get to their schools. Yeah, definitely. And I I know you guys are both parents and so this is something that even even for people who are not directly working in in planning or working on school research, it's something that resonates with people because they have to decide how their kids are going to get to school even if they're located nearby a school. Is it it may not be a distance problem. It may be just the even the site design of the school is incredibly car oriented and not safe for people who are walking. The, the catch-22 there um, is very real that like the one of the number one reasons that parents will cite for driving their kids to school, even if theoretically they could walk, is, well, it's not safe. But part of why it's not safe is because the environment immediately around the school has been designed to accommodate huge volumes of car traffic. Well, why is there all that car traffic? Because parents are driving their kids to school because it's not safe. And I know Chuck Marone has written eloquently about this in pieces that we've published before, but we're just like the, the vicious cycle there. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it it seems to kind of align with even like the neighborhood corner store issue like that has consolidated into grocery stores and malls that are located on large tracts of land. And, and, you know, you wouldn't dare walk to a mall. (laughs) And, you know, maybe you could walk to a grocery store, but I depends. So it just becomes really uncommon to be able to walk to these large consolidated tracts of land that are not necessarily integrated very well with other things. And then the way we design streets, the way we design the entire community around these large tracts of land also influences how people uh, associate with them. It's funny because I I rode the bus to school all the way up through through high school, and I, I have pretty fond memories of those rides, um, actually, like, I mean, not always, of course, it's, you're, you're on a bus, it's bumpy, it's unpleasant, but, but like the, the thing that struck me thinking about this was that like my school bus ride actually gave me the confidence to navigate the city for years. Like I'm on the bus. I was really interested in like, you know, we, in August, we get the new bus route, the printout would come in the mail and it would be, here's your stop. And here are all the other stops on your route. And I'd map it out and I'd be like, Oh, cool. So like, what it did was it actually taught me something about how to navigate my city independently, even though I'm on this bus that's just taken me to one place. Um, by the time I got to high school, I knew the neighborhoods, I knew the major streets, and I started riding public transit around, and there was nothing really foreign or intimidating about that. But there's a big question here of children's independence that bears on 
well-being in some really profound ways, even beyond just this education. But I think, um, can a child navigate the environment in a way that is, to an age-appropriate extent, independent? And, you know, they don't have a permanent chauffeur in their mom or dad or whoever for every, every single possible need. But do we build the kind of places where we see children as kind of full citizens who can get around and meet their needs in their own way? Um, and I, I had that experience growing up. I learned to, to, to walk and bike and I learned to take the buses, the public buses around town. Um, one thing about the experience of riding the school bus, I think, helped catalyze that in me. It helped me build the mental map of like, hey, this is a place that I can I can connect to things and I can get to things and I don't have to like just be driven by my parents and be this passive object in the car from A to B. <laughs> I'd never thought about that, but you're so right. Go ahead, Michael. I appreciate you bringing it up because I had the exact opposite experience that plays out and reinforces your point of uh, I, I I was driven to school my whole life and I rode my I rode a bus for the first time my last semester of college uh, and so there was an intimidation factor of I was a little uncomfortable getting into public transportation but once I once I started yeah I'm an enthusiastic public transportation, multimodal transportation person now, but it required that initial experience. I also appreciate you bringing up the the question of student autonomy and student agency in the environment. And I think that there's also sort of an implicit question that we need to make explicit and discuss as a society and as a community, not only what can students and children do for themselves, but also who's, who, who are we designing for? Who's getting the, the priority in the environment? Is it students' jobs to navigate around cars or is it cars job to navigate around students because I think it's there's often this assumption that cars belong here and then people figure out how to get around the cars and it doesn't have to be that way we can design other ways to prioritize other modes of transit or dare I say prioritize people and that is going to look different in some ways that's going to require some communication and some buy-in so I think there are a lot of folks who can be on board with this idea of prioritizing the student getting into the school but if you walk in front of a car during drop-off time you're probably going to get honked at and so being able to help build a culture of understanding a culture of how are we all moving together is a process that's a community process that's a conversation yeah, that's really fascinating. And this has been such a thought-provoking conversation. Michael, I know that you are limited on time today, so I don't want to keep you too long, but I really, really appreciate that you were able to jump in on this conversation um, because I think it there this is one of those issues that needs to be thought about in a multidisciplinary way. And so uh, understanding all of these different layers and having people think about it in that way, I think is really important. So Michael, I really appreciate you joining us today. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you for having me. Yeah. And so this is going to be, because we're crunched on time, this will be a rare up zone where we won't do a down zone today. I'm sorry, everyone, but we'll share fun stuff next week, I promise. Um, and Daniel, thank you again, as always, for joining us today. Thanks, Abby. It's always a pleasure. Yeah. Well, thanks, everyone, for listening to another episode of UpZoned. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Thanks, guys. Let me show you what I'm about to do.